Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest, Sandra Martin, I want to tell you an exciting thing about the upcoming Unspeakeasy Retreat in Austin, Texas. Our guest speaker will be, are you ready? Bridget Fetisy. Bridget Fetisy, superstar, podcaster, YouTuber, writer, leading thought criminal. She's going to be with us in person talking about whatever we want to talk about and whatever she wants to talk about in Austin. That's June 24th and 25th. It's a weekend daytime only retreat. As always, space is limited and it's filling up really fast, but there are some spots left. So if you are interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and inquire and I'll tell you all about it. Okay. My guest is Sandra Martin. She is an award-winning long-form journalist. She's a literary critic, public policy specialist, and a contributing writer for The Globe and Mail in Canada. She's the author of several books, including one about a subject that I'd like to cover a lot more on this podcast, and that is the decisions we make, if we're lucky enough to be able to make them, at the end of life. In her book, A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices, Sandra lays out what she describes as a social history of the right to die movement. And while her focus is on Canada, the issue she examines and the story she tells will be of interest to just about anyone, anywhere, who's thought about what will happen at the end of their lives or have uh, gone through this kind of thing with a loved one. I think Sandra's perspective is especially relevant because of all the recent attention paid to Canada's Medical Assistance in Dying Act, better known as MAID. I'll say a few things about MAID. It was first passed in 2016 as a parliamentary bill that allowed adults to obtain medically assisted death if they had a grievous and irremediable medical condition and if their death was reasonably foreseeable. So in other words, those diagnosed with an incurable illness, disease, or disability that caused unbearable mental or physical suffering could qualify for medical assistance in dying, but only if they were close to dying. And in the years since, a number of things have happened, including that that law has been slowly expanded to include people who may be suffering terribly, but are not at the natural end of their lives. So since then, we have had legislation introduced even further that would allow people to seek MAID if they were suffering solely from mental illness. To be clear, as of now, that legislation is not in effect, but there have been reports, and you may have uh, heard about this on podcasts like Tara Henley's podcast in places like the Free Press, of Canadians being approved for MAID simply because they felt desperate or were unable to manage chronic illness or even pay their bills. Now, it's not clear how common that is, and Sandra Martin is not here to talk about MAID specifically, but I mention all of this by way of saying that Canada is a pretty good case study when it comes to this topic, and I think Sandra is a great starting point for what I hope will be more interviews about this incredibly complex set of issues. She tells some amazing stories here. We talk about, for instance, the difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide. We talk about the problem of proving you're fit for decision-making when you have dementia or are quickly losing mental capacity. We talk about the complex character that was Dr. Jack Kevorkian. 
I'll also say that while I think this conversation is quite accessible and pretty easygoing, it does, especially in the second half, contain some frank language about death and dying, in some cases having to do with children, in case that's something you want to avoid. As always, Sandra stays overtime for paying subscribers to talk about how she feels about being the age that she is and how she imagines her own death. It's funner than you might imagine. You can go to the Substack, uh, megandom.substack.com, become a paying subscriber if you want to hear that part. In the meantime, here is my conversation for everyone with Sandra Martin. Sandra Martin, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You've had a long career as, as a journalist. In 1998, you started a job at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada I think you were a freelancer for a long time before that. You wrote all sorts of features, including obituaries, which we're going to talk about, and you published several books. You eventually became interested in issues around death and dying, so much so that you wrote a column about that subject called The Long Goodbye. In 2016, you published a book, The Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices. I am also interested in these issues, and I'm making a point of finding guests who will talk about them. And I have to say, in fact, I'm so keen to discuss this that I find myself sort of overwhelmed and unsure where to start. So maybe I'll start by asking where you started when you first began looking into this subject. Well, it began because I had decided I wanted to change. I loved working at the Globe and Mail, and I'd done quite a few things for them on staff and and as a freelancer. But I was ba- I was mostly writing about literary subjects. And so, you know, I was interviewing Margaret Atwood about once a year and lots of other people. But I thought, I want to change. And there was uh, a posting internally for an obituary writer. And I thought, no one is going to apply for that because <laughs> it is known as the death trap, the graveyard of journalism. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to apply for that job if I get it. No one's going to pay any attention to me. Little did I know. So I did get the job and I started writing obituaries and I found it fascinating. And I'm not the only one to find these things fascinating. Gay Talese, for example, wrote uh, in one of his memoirs that this was the most interesting job he'd ever had because you've got to find the whole life. It's not just the lead based on a new book out or a new film. Oh, yeah. It's like a little biography of the person, right? You're writing their life story in a little column. Done really fast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And lots of mistakes and also summing up the life in sort of the shadows and the light. It's not it's not a eulogy. So anyway, I started writing obituaries. And oh, my goodness, I was busy, very, very busy. And but I loved it. And so after writing obituaries for a long time, I was aware of people dying in different ways. And that's what sparked my interest in how people died and how they had to often die in the shadows and keep secrets. And their family would be visited by the police afterwards and have to say, I don't I don't know where she got the name Utah or I, I, I have no idea. All because it was a it was not against the law to commit suicide, but it was certainly against the law to help somebody else die. And so that became of interest to me. And I, you know, then it became a huge topic in Canada. What was the relationship between writing the obituary and thinking about how they died? 
and whether it might have been a suicide or assisted suicide. Like, did that come up a lot? Um, no, not initially, because uh, people didn't talk about it. And in fact, even now, when I read death notices, which are the family placed notices in various papers, often one reads died at a time of his own choosing or died as he wished or she wished. And that is code for saying they had made. But what I was interested in at the time were people, and some of them were coming to me and asking me to tell their stories, people who wanted to die because their lives, their suffering was intolerable. And yet there was no legal opportunity to do that. They couldn't have help. For example, there was a family I, I was wrote about who had Huntington's disease, which is a terrible genetic neurodegenerative disease. And um, it combines uh, elements of schizophrenia, Parkinson's and dementia. I mean, it's a terrible disease. And if you have it, if one of your parents has it, there's a 50% chance you're going to get it. So there was a family who came to me through a, a, a society called Dying with Dignity. A dying with Dignity would not help you die, but it was interested in talking about these subjects. So they came to me and asked if I would tell their story. And th- one of these, one of the members of this family, the six kids, grown, was going to go without food and drink until she died. So the Globe was interested in that story, and I wrote it. And so there were more, more and more stories of like that, not necessarily out of obituaries themselves, but because I was writing obituaries, I was interested in death and dying. And it became, in Canada, if, if I may go back, if you don't mind, um, we had a very famous case. In, I mean, nobody ever knows anything about Canada, right? I mean, we're, we're tiny. Well, having read your book, I feel like I know the story of everybody who ever, uh, you know, had uh, assisted suicide in Canada. But yes, yeah, I please. did cram a lot into that book. <laughs> but anyway, there was a woman whose name was Sue Rodriguez. Yeah. And she lived in British Columbia, which is on the west coast of Canada, up from California. And she had a nine-year-old son, and she was diagnosed with ALS, which is the long term is the disease. Lou Gehrig died of it. And I think most people remember that. It's a terrible neurodegenerative disease where your body slowly disintegrates. Your, bra- your brain remains active. So you can sort of watch your body disintegrate. So she wanted to die. And there was no possibility of her being able to die. And so she ended up, she caught the imagination of the Canadian public. And her case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, which means it's gone through the hierarchical levels of the of the justice system. And she lost by five to four. But she really put that idea out there. Because for most of us, we're thinking about the sanctity of life. You're supposed to be saving people's lives, helping them, not ending them. But at some point, it's about the individual. And it's about the individual's choice. And, and patient-centered care, all of those things became important to me. And so I became interested in writing about it. And what year was Sue Rodriguez? What time period are we talking about? Sue Rodriguez was in the early 90s. And okay. about 20 years passed before another case came before the Supreme Court, again, of British Columbia. And by that time, things had changed somewhat. We have a different system in Canada from the one in the United States. We have a constitutional parliamentary system. So we have a federal system, and then underneath it, we have various state, uh, various provinces, territories, and so on. And 
responsibilities have been divided. They were divided when Canada was set up in the British North American Act, which was established along the lines of peace, order, and good government. So there were certain things that were federal responsibilities and certain things that were provincial responsibilities. And one of the provincial responsibilities was healthcare. And I'm telling you all this because Quebec has always been different from the rest of the country. It is uh, a specialized society. And so they were interested in Quebec in healthcare as a provincial responsibility. And to them, that included end of life care. So they started a movement in which they asked their citizens, what do you want? And they heard stories from so many people who had had terrible, terrible struggles with you know, family members suffering and so on and so forth. And there was a very compelling young woman named Nancy B who was in a re- on a respirator because she had uh, something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. She was in her early 20s. She was gonna live for another 50 or 60 years but she was never going to get out of that respirator. She was a devout Catholic, but then she finally said, I don't want this. I don't want this. So she won the right, the legal system, to withdraw from treatment. But that's very different from asking someone to help you end treatment. So Sue Rodriguez, about the same time on the West Coast, was she had all sorts of medical help. She had great palliative care which is what we call hospice care in Canada. But that isn't what she wanted. She wanted to die when she felt she could no longer live. And she wanted to die peacefully. So that was why she asked not to have treatment withdrawn, but to have somebody help her end treatment. So that's how that had had started. So 20 years later, there's another case. Quebec is agitating now for having responsibility for end of life care. And that included helping people who were to- who were suffering intolerably to end their lives. In BC at the same time, they were getting another series of people who would be willing to step forward and say, yes, this is what I want. And so they launched another suit helped by the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association and the wonderful late constitutional lawyer, Joseph Arve, who himself, was disabled. He uh, he was a paraplegic because of a car crash. But that, you know, and I'd like to talk about the disabled in, in more detail, but because you have a disability doesn't mean you don't have agency, right? And that was what he wanted to argue. So this case, the, so the movement on the West, on the, on the East Coast in British Columbia, in uh, Quebec, and the movement on the West Coast kind of were going on at the same time. And it was very, very interesting if you were interested in legal issues, which I discovered I was. And the argument that won at the Supreme Court of Canada in the case, first of all, Joe Arve didn't base his case on one person who was going to die soon because there was that urgency. He based it on a bunch of people, six people who were not dying imminently, but who had terrible illnesses that were causing him lots of suffering. One woman, for example, Kay Carter, after whom the name is the, the case is, is named, had been taken by her family to Switzerland, the only country that allows what we call death tourism. You can come from away and, and have an assisted death if you qualify. So her Kay Carter's grown children were worried that they might be prosecuted when they came back to Canada for aiding a suicide. So all of this was okay. So all of this was going on, and I'm going to cut to the chase. The argument that won 
at the Supreme Court was an interesting one. We have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is something that uh, now dead, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, passed through the parliament. It was very complicated. And the queen, the late Queen Elizabeth II, came over and signed it. So that became part of our constitution, that individuals have rights and, and duties. And what he argued effectively was that because she had to die before she wanted to die, Sue Rodriguez was being denied life because she had to have somebody help her die because she was losing the capacity to hold anything in her hands, to speak. I mean, she was becoming paralyzed rapidly. So she would not be able to drink a potion. She would not be able to do whatever whatever means that people do when they want to end their lives and they're on their own and they're alone. What Whatever horrible methods she might have. So she would have theoretically or potentially wanted to live a little bit longer and waited until such a time when when somebody else could do it for her like having having to the, the stipulation that you have to be able to do it yourself would would hasten or shorten her life shorten the time got it because got it. Okay. she'd have to right. do it i mean and because there was so much attention being paid to this case I mean, she was on television, on the news and a lot, and she was just this very charismatic person. Mm. And you could see her voice. You could, I mean, finally, near the end, there were, uh, there were little statements at the bottom, you know, saying what she was talking about because they, you, you really couldn't hear her or couldn't understand her. So her life, she was denied the end of her life. And so that was the argument that won at the Supreme Court. And so the, Supreme Court handed down its decision in um, February uh, 5th, uh, 2015, and gave the government of the day a year to introduce legislation if it so chose. If not, the, the Supreme Court decision would stand. Now, this is the same thing that happened with abortion in Canada, which is, a, of course, as you know, a hot topic in the United States. Abortion was struck down in the Supreme Court of Canada, and there was never any law put in by the federal government or the provincial governments who were in charge of, of health care. So there is a precedent for that. These two very, very important issues about a personal autonomy were, were in those, that situation. So the government of the day, which was, um, in this case, the liberal government under Justin Trudeau, the son of former Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the one who had introduced the uh, Rights and Freedoms Act, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, um, he introduced a bill which was passed, but it added various things to the Supreme Court decision, including the person applying to die had to have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. And that has been something that has been argued about ever since and maybe the source of certain controversy about medical aid and dying. Right. So we're hearing a lot about medical aid and dying or MAID in Canada these days. And just so I get the timeline straight, is this what emerged from this legislation in 2015? Is this When we talk about MAID, what are we talking about? We're talking about what was uh, passed in 2000, the Supreme Court decision being handed down in 2015, and the eventual law, 
which was uh, promulgated in June 2016, and it was called Medical Assistance in Dying. And the Quebec system, which had started a little sooner, was French variation of medical aid in dying. It's just a you know translation. Okay. And what was the mood just generally ar- around this? I mean, were people, for the most part, open to it, sympathetic to it? How polarizing was this? It was very confusing, very polarizing, very troublesome. This was a huge change. I mean, and it was a huge change for doctors. And a lot of doctors thought, oh, well, the palliative care doctors will take care of this. No, we aren't, the palliative care doctors said quite explicitly in a statement. We have a way of helping patients die, which was we soothe their comfort. We give them morphine. You know, we can get into whether that hastens death or not. But uh, they had their system. And most doctors wanted nothing to do with it, absolutely nothing. In fact, the Canadian Medical Association had issued a statement not, you know, between the time that the Supreme Court handed down its decision and the law was put into place that they didn't, uh, they didn't want to do it. So it was scary. Now, I'd like to say, if, if you don't mind, there's a difference between, say, Canada and the Netherlands. And the Netherlands have had a long history of doctors helping their family patients die and confessing and going before the courts and being charged or not charged or being acquitted. And over those years, those 30 years, they developed something called due care criteria. So they developed a system. And it was only in 2002, many years after this system was established, that the Netherlands passed its own, what they call euthanasia law. I mean, doctors have often helped patients die. There's a famous case, if, if you'd like to hear about it, of um, George V. Oh, this is a great story. Yes, tell us this one. Well, he he was a big smoker. And, uh, and when had, was this? Put this into some context. 1936. 19, okay. End of 35, beginning of 36. So he had what was then called emphysema, but it was now often called chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease, COPD. It's a terrible way to die. And it's, you know, anyway, he had it. And his doctor was, he was at one of the uh, British family homes called Sandringham. It was Christmas time. And he could see that his patient was going to die, but it was going to be long. It was going to be protracted. It was going to be hard on the family and so on and so forth. And it wasn't going to be at a good time of day uh, because the announcement would be made not in the stately Times newspaper, but on one of the tabloids because of the time of day. He's probably going to die in the afternoon. So the after it would be in the afternoon edition of the paper as opposed to in yes. the more dignified I mean, morning yes. edition. I mean, it's hard to imagine today, but... <laughs> Anyway, so he did give uh, his patient, King George and his monarch, an injection of uh, drugs into his jugular. And so he died very peacefully and quickly. And then it was a, you know, an easeful death. But that didn't mean that um, that the doctor felt that anybody should be able to do this. So that when this when a, a, when a bill came up that year in the House of Lords, he voted against it and argued that um, you know people shouldn't be allowed to have any say when they died. It was up to doctors. Well, that's the big difference between then and now. Now it is, according to the Supreme Court of Canada, 
It is patients who should say that their tough, their suffering is intolerable and that there's no treatment that is acceptable to them. They've tried this, they've tried that. No, they are, they're done and it's their choice. And they are the ones who ask their doctors if they qualify for an assisted death. And there's a process to go through and you have to have two doctors and so on and so forth. Right. It's it's remarkable, that story, because it's really saying that having this kind of dignified death is a privilege, that this is something for special people. Was this out in the open? Like, was it known that he this doctor had done this? With no, George. not at the no, not at the time. It was uh, his name was Dawson. It was last name Dawson. It was only after his uh, his uh, diary was published after his death that it became known. Let's go back to the Netherlands here for a second. There's something called the Dutch Voluntary Euthanasia Society. You have a chapter called Dueling Doctors, where you talk about the different approaches taken by physicians probably around the, you know, through the 2000s. One of them is uh, somebody named Dr. Petra de Jong. Tell us her story. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to tell you that it was really trying to do in my book, A Good Death, is do a kind of social history of the right to die movement. And so I wanted to talk about other countries. And the Netherlands is a great example, because as I said, they'd had this long, long process of making mistakes, confessing, helping people die, being charged or not charged, and they developed this due care criteria. So she was one of them. She was a lung specialist. She had a patient who was about 45, 50, suffering terribly, horribly unable to breathe and wanting to die. And so she gave him medication. But because she'd never done it before, she given gave him the wrong amount of medication. And it was a holiday weekend. And so he was at home having taken this medication, suffering horribly and not dying. His wife was in distress, obviously. And Petra de Jong could not go to him because ugh, she was stuck with small children at home. There was nobody who could go and help him. Finish it. And so she, um, she told her superiors and uh, she was, you know, criticized and so on and so forth. And so she learned that the next time she was going to help somebody die, someone who was an extremist like that, who wanted to die, she would do it in a hospital and she told people about it. So there wasn't the secrecy of, say, the way uh, Dr. Dawson helped George V die. There wasn't that secrecy. There was openness about it. There was discussion about it. And over many years, they developed this due care criteria. So that when they finally put in their law in 2002, they passed their euthanasia law, it wasn't such a strange thing. But for us in Canada, um, even though we had the Sue Rodriguez example in, from the 90s, to have this law suddenly passed in June 2016 was very discombobulating for a lot of doctors and a lot of patients, a lot of people. I mean, what did this mean? And there was this provision added in the law, imminently, a reasonably foreseeable natural death. Well, what's that? I mean... Any survey of doctors, they can't predict exactly when you're going to die. So it became very complicated, this added protection for, to protect the vulnerable. In fact, it caused a lot of, of uh, patients undue suffering because they, were, they weren't qualified because they weren't close enough to death, but they were certainly suffering, which was the Supreme Court definition. And also, near the end of death, near the end of life, if you're very, very sick, mostly these are cancer patients, you go in and out 
And so some people were having to get rid of their, stop taking their painkillers so they'd be lucid enough to affirm consent at the last minute. So it was a troublesome, a troublesome measure. I've heard this movement or this issue compared to like a civil rights issue. I've heard it talked about in terms of like, this is going to be the next big civil rights issue, the right to die on your own terms, just because of the sheer number of baby boomers who are aging rapidly and will uh, soon be approaching death. And the baby boomers are a huge cohort and pretty influential. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that like we are, 50 years from now, we're going to be looking back on this time as like sort of barbaric or the fact that we, that we question this to the extent that we do, is that going to just seem like it was, it was slow progress? Where, where do you think this is going? Well, certain things have happened. You no longer, there's been an amendment to the law so that a reasonably foreseeable natural death is top tier but there's another tier where you don't have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. Say someone like Sue Rodriguez with ALS. And so there's already been that distinction. And if you're in the first tier, the reasonably foreseeable natural death, you're now allowed to waive the final consent so that you don't have to have that teeter-totter between not taking your pain medication and being lucid enough to, to do it. But you have to still qualify and you have to still have all the paperwork done and so on. But the other level, is the one which is going to be problematic. And that is, you've got a disease, you're suffering, but your death is not imminent. So what happens? And in that case, there's a 90-day waiting period, and you have to consult uh, an expert doctor in your field. That expert doctor has to be one of the assessors. So that's, that's going to be the issue. The big, big issue is dementia. So many people want to have an advance request that if I, for example, get to the stage where I don't recognize my family, I can no longer control my bodily needs, uh, I want to end my life. And this is a very difficult situation. I mean, I know people talk, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Switzerland or I'm just going to go on a, you know, whatever. Pillow over my head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, reality is different, right? And you don't really know. These are difficult, difficult issues. And also doctors have and should have the right to conscientious dissent. I, no, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. I, I didn't get into medicine to help somebody die. And the other problem with dementia, which is far more serious a problem for an aging population. The problem is that some people are happy and unaware. And some people are angry and often violent. So what do you do? I mean, would I want to come at somebody with a syringe if that person were violent and scared or happy and unaware? It's those are difficult issues. And the question of advanced consent that you uh, say, I want this when I, you know, you can do that with withdrawing treatment. You can sign, do not resuscitate. Do Oh, by the way, let me give you a tip. If you have a pacemaker and you want to have a do not resuscitate, say, turn off my pacemaker. Oh. <laughs> because you can, the pacemaker can keep your heart going. Oh, right. Wow. Just a little tip I picked up along the way. (laughs) But these are, I'm not saying that I'm interested in in killing people off. I'm not. 
I, I think these are serious issues. I think they require a lot of, of discussion. And, but I do know that for so many people, it has meant not dying in the shadows, but dying surrounded by loved ones. It's a difficult, difficult question to bring up with your family. And one of the things about patient confidentiality is that you don't have to tell anybody. It's between you and your doctors whether you want to die or not. So that's caused problems too. But if you have, I believe in transparency. I think this is a long way of answering your questions, but I think we should be talking to our families. We should be saying, this is what I want and being open with them. And I know too, that for families, it's so hard. I love him. I don't want him to die. There's a quite a famous novel in Canada called All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, mm-hmm. her father had stretched out, uh, knelt down on the train tracks because his depression was so bad. And that's how he had died. And she had a sister who was begging her to take her to Switzerland. And Miriam, the author, said, I'm not, what? No, I love you. I don't want to help you die. And so her sister also put herself in, on the railway tracks. Oh and that's gosh. how she died. So you don't want that. I mean, you don't want the terrible deaths that people have. but. So often for people to understand that their loved one really wants to die and has a serious intractable illness, then I've heard them say, I, because I loved him, I let him go. That's a very hard decision for someone because you don't want to be alone, right? You don't want your, no, your mother, it's, your father. It's, right. And it's so, I mean, this is such a cliche to say, and it's, I don't mean to, it, say it in any way that sounds diminishing, but like we do this for our pets, you know, like it's so it's, it's when you're talking about a human being, obviously it's, you know, the scale is entirely different, but it's um, we've somehow accepted that it's merciful and kind and humane to relieve your pet of suffering at the end of their life, if you can. But the way that we let human beings suffer is just, it's just monstrous, but but it also you can see where it's it's coming from. Well, it's all about the sanctity of life versus uh, right the right. choice, right? Yeah, right. No, it's, it's it's difficult. And if I may intrude, I believe your mother died of cancer, right? Yes. So did mine. And I don't know. I don't know how much that influenced me, but I do look back on that. In fact, as I was writing a good death she kept coming out of the ends of my fingertips because I had no idea back when she died, how terrible it was going to be, how long it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I I had no idea back then, it was in the early eighties about palliative care or any of that stuff. And now I see that her death could have been so much better if she had asked for it. Right. And I will say, I mean, my mother died in 2009 and it was brutal. I mean, just absolutely excruciating. It, it was only a year. So there was that. But uh, we did have palliative care and it was great. But even then, I, I, I kicked myself. Uh, there are things that I wish I had done differently. She definitely wanted to die. I mean, she told my brother and me that she didn't want to live anymore. And I know she was having conversations with the hospice nurse about how to hasten things, but it didn't go fast enough. And I just, it, it haunts me. It really does. 
this reminds me of the uh, story you tell about Atul Gawande, the famous physician and something that happened in his family. Yeah, his parents were both doctors. He is a doctor. So his father had an, um, a not very common cancer that was sort of the brain stem going down to the spinal cord, and it, it was going to be very, very painful. And he, he knew that. And so they'd had the hospice nurse come. They had the yellow piece of paper on the refrigerator. Do not resuscitate, all those sorts of things. And then one morning, um, the senior Gawande woke up and he wasn't breathing well. And his wife, a doctor, knew he wasn't breathing well. And so she panicked and called 911 or whatever you call it in the States. You called emergency. Yeah, 911 here. Okay. And so um, he was taken to hospital. He was treated for pneumonia or something. And about three days later, he woke up and he was furious. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. So I said to Atul Gawande, delicately, I hope, <laughs> you knew what your father wanted. Um, the yellow piece of paper was on the, on the on the fridge. Why did your mother call the emergency services? And he said, because we were thinking like family. We weren't thinking like doctors. And that is so true. I mean, and, and if you're not a medical person and suddenly your loved one isn't breathing, how are you supposed to know whether this is the end or just, you know, something that can be fixed? So you call and that sets up the whole end of life, not end of life treatment so much as more treatment, more treatment. So what happened in this particular case is Gawandi said to me, and you know what? I'm glad my mother did that because I had time to get there to be at my father's bedside while he died. I want to go back to this idea of they were thinking like doctors or they were not, they were thinking like family. They were not thinking like doctors. So that suggests that doctors would have let Atul Gawande's father die right away in that situation. I don't, in the United States anyway, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I've had, so both of my parents uh, have passed and my father had, was being treated for cancer when he died. It wasn't his cause of death ultimately, but I just remember having conversations with doctors, oncologists in particular, but all kinds of physicians who just were not interested in entertaining any other kind of trajectory or any even conversation that didn't have to do with treatment, treatment, treatment uh, for something that was pretty clearly not going to have a good outcome ultimately. And I wonder if there's a difference between physicians' approaches in, in Canada as opposed to in the U.S., or I don't even know how much you know about that. Well, but if you have thoughts. Yes, I just want to say that in the Gawande situation, they had made the arrangements with the hospice nurse. Call the hospice nurse if something happens. So they already had a plan, a death plan. So that's that's different from, say, you know, an or some doctor they didn't know very well, like showing up at emergency ward or something like mm -hmm. that. So that was what I meant. They were they were thinking like family, not like not like the kind of doctor that I guess a Tulka Wandi would like to think he is and is, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but so there is a different system in the United States. Um, we have a very medicalized system where there's almost there's you can um, there's a doctor in attendance almost always. And there have been two doctors that you've been dealing with. So that was getting doctors on side and they did become outside. And the fact that we had a law 
helped them enormously. I've heard that from so many palliative care doctors. It was legal. So then with the, the one of the big palliative care centers in Toronto, for example, where I live, they decided after the law, 2016, that they would help someone die with medical assistance in dying. And if you didn't want to do that, you would have to step aside and some other doctor would come forward. So there is always that sort of system. But the United States, they have it in, they have medical assistance in dying or right to die in various states. I mean, Oregon is probably the most famous one, but it's a different system. And what you do is the patient goes to his or her doctor and there's two doctors have to agree that the, the patient is within six months of dying. And they, the patient is given a prescription if he or she qualifies. And then it's up to the patient to get that prescription filled and to take the medication. You don't have to have a doctor present. Right, right. So it's easier for doctors to opt out of the whole business than, um, and for some doctors just to sort of have a little side, you know, that's what they do. It's a kind of an underground connection. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, the vast majority of people who obtain those medications end up not using them. It's just a kind of little thing. It's it's almost you take comfort in the fact that you have it. Um, I've, I've talked about this with a couple different guests on this on this podcast. But I mean, I guess what I was thinking of when I asked that question a minute ago, like it, it just seems so chaotic here. So when my father was in the hospital he was in a big New York city hospital and he had a, he was sharing a room generally with another patient. And for a period of time, there was a guy in there on the other side of the curtain who was, you know, I I think he had been homeless. He had been brought in. He didn't have any family. He was delusional. He was hallucinating. He was extremely ill. He was, you know, just crying out and shouting out and, and, you know, just very agitated all the time. And uh, there were at least two, maybe three occasions where he, I guess, what are they called? He, he coded, like they had to, they, they had to resuscitate him. Um, he was dying and they came in and they had their cart and they, you know, big deal. And they got him back going again. And he was clearly dying. And uh, you could, we could hear this. We were sitting there and we could hear this whole thing taking place on the other side of the curtain. We couldn't see what was happening, but we could hear the doctors. We could hear the conversations. And then, you know, at one point after all this calamity, I heard one of the doctors say, gosh, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I like this because this is supposed to be comfort care. And why are we doing this? You know, we've done this now two times. And um, I think finally my brother was there. I wasn't there. They, he finally it happened again, and they and they let him go. I don't know. I don't really have any other. I don't have any coda to this story, but it's just the kind of thing where you're like, my God, what if I'm in this guy's situation? I mean, he didn't have any family around. I don't know what kind of like advanced directive you can have if you're brought in and you don't have any support system. I don't. It's. I, I, I don't know. I guess I just feel like how do we how do we avoid this happening? <laughs> Where to start? Conversation. I would say in a word, conversation, talking publicly, talking like this. Um, If you call 911, you're asking for help. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. So you walk into an emergency department and you're saying, I need help. And they're going to give it to you. Um, It's very hard for doctors 
not to do what they're trained to do. And so now, gradually, end of life is becoming a topic in medical schools. There's all sorts of things that doctors worry about, and and they're stretched. I mean, COVID has just changed everything for for all sorts of people. And it is very difficult, but I think it's conversation and it's our responsibility to make our wishes known. Now, I know this person, if you say he was homeless, he was maybe he didn't have any opportunity to, to tell anybody what yeah. he wanted. But it is certainly our responsibility to say what we want in this situation. Here's what I'd like. Here's what I, you know. And, and of course, as the Gawande example shows, family versus doctors, um, we just wanted, we didn't want him to die. His his mother did not want her husband to die, and so she phoned. But we have to learn that life is finite, and suffering can be unbearable. And you're watching somebody suffer, but it's the person, the patient, who is doing the suffering, right? Let's talk about what's going on with made right now, because especially we in the States are reading sort of conflicting reports and even sort of horror stories about people being referred to made if they have, are, are, if they're not able to pay their medical bills, for instance. Uh, and there's also, if you are, you know, if you have mental illness or you're depressed, for instance, being referred to made, tell us what is fact and what is fiction here. There's a lot of uncertainty for sure. Um, one is, I have to give you, I'm sorry, a bit more history if you don't mind. Yes. <laughs> you do mind or you don't mind? No, I, I please. <laughs> I, do, I don't, I never mind. <laughs> okay. So um, as soon as medical assistance in dying was passed, there were cha- constitutional challenges to it because it insisted that the patient had to have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. Well, you may have a devastating illness that you're not going to die for for decades. And so those people were challenging. So the one that worked was in Quebec, and it was brought by two people, a man who had a dreadful kind of cerebral palsy and a woman who had post-polio. So they were both suffering. They were not going to die soon, and they didn't qualify for MAID. And so they brought this case, and it was during COVID, so it got delayed and so on and so forth. They brought it in 2019, as I recall. And eventually they won in Quebec. And so Canada could have, the federal government could have challenged the provincial government's bill on this case. But it, but the justice minister did not challenge it. And so that changed the law. And what happened because of that was the man, whose name was Trushaw, um, who had this terrible form of cerebral palsy that was getting worse and worse. And, and he was afraid of getting COVID at the same time and what was going to happen to him. He actually applied because they both, they, he was given an exemption. He applied for MAID and received it. Now, the other plaintiff, whose name was uh, Gladue, a woman with the post-polio, she also went through uh, COVID and she never actually exercised her right made. So what she wanted, I think, was to have this get out of jail free card, that if things get very bad, and to prove that this was important. And I think there are a lot of people who will tell their stories, 
often these stories we read on the internet or in newspapers and how many sources are there? I, you know, I hesitate to guess, but they want to make a statement. There is a woman, for example, who was young, who was, had ALS. Every, there had been a, a few in her family had had it. She was going to die. And she made the statement that I want a wheelchair. And she wasn't given a wheelchair or certainly not fast enough. So she had made. These are very disturbing stories. But they're also not well sourced. And I, I do worry about them. I do listen to them. Um, it's hard to say what to do because you hear all these stories. They decided that because the Supreme Court decision did not restrict suffering that was intolerable to the patient to physical suffering, it is mental illness is uh, is allowed under the Supreme Court ruling. And in fact, people with mental illness have qualified for MAID in the past. But now there was a real fuss about mental illness. And I think it was because badly sourced stories, uh, people worrying, because mental illness is not a physical illness. You can recover or you cannot. I mean, you know, and if you don't recover, if it's uh, something that just cannot be treated, then you might end up, well, end up being suicidal and dying in the shadows or on the railway tracks. It's a very hard decision. So, what the government decided to do with all this outcry was to postpone the um, development of uh, the inclusion of mental illness. So that's postponed for a year and there's more talk and studying going on. But I want to say that I don't think the system is perfect. I think we need much better recording of uh, data. I think we need many more conversations. Um, I think we all need to talk about it. And there, mental illness is an, an incredibly difficult one. I mean, I... I think it should be allowed, but I think the bar should be high. Because who am I to say that your suffering doesn't matter? Right. I mean, not you, personally. No, I know. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying that uh, about the sourcing of these stories, but at the same time, I mean, these have been, this has been in the in the Associated Press. The you know the journalist Rupa Supermania has reported in depth about this. You know, this has been covered by in outlets that as far as I know are trustworthy. So I don't know. I mean, th there were more than 10,000 deaths by euthanasia in Canada last year from what I have read. And that's up by more than a third or an increase of about a third from, from the previous year. And I, I'm not in, in any way sitting here being like a, an alarmist American. I mean, I, I'm concerned about this. And I think I told you this because I think these laws are incredibly important. I want people to have access to uh, death with dignity. I, I want, I, I'm terrified myself of not being able to have any sense of agency when my own time comes. So I, I very much want these laws to be here, but it's a little bit terrifying when you hear these stories of, of them being abused. So I agree. And, and in fact, we're not reading many stories right now because these things go in waves. There was worry about including mental illness, so there were a lot of stories. There was, so that's been postponed, so the stories have died down. And I do think that people do, as I said, want to make a statement. They they know they're going to die. They want to die, but they want something to, that will last. That will say, "I did this." But I also think that made is pretty new, so of course the number of deaths are going to rise, right? 
I don't want to be an apologist for this um, in a in a big way, but since um, the the numbers of deaths have gone up since 2016, because it wasn't allowed before, and mm-hmm. uh, people are becoming more open about it, about talking about it. I mean, I mentioned earlier on that you know I look, I used to, look, I, I still look at the death notices and see died at a time of his choosing. Well, that's code, but now people are being more open about it. Do you have any sense of like? what people did in the past, like something like Alzheimer's, did people just die more quickly from it? Like what, what has changed? If anything, did, how did people handle this before? Were people just like in institutions just with Alzheimer's for years and years until they finally died or did they not live as long? Well, we didn't live as long. Um, the, you know, we're living much longer than we did was more women uh, because they usually didn't have enough education and things to keep their brains going that often, and they took care of everybody else. So it was often oh. more women than men. One of the things about whether there are mistakes made with medical assistance in dying is the reporting system. We don't have enough data. And we also, I haven't heard of any doctors being, uh, sent before the Canadian Medical Association to be, you know, chastised or to be penalized for anything they've done, which is another thing. We need to know more. Mm-hmm. But I also think that people are using their situations to try and achieve change. And mostly that happens with uh, people who are disabled, who want more equipment, more social supports. I mean, we don't, you know, our medical system is sometimes it's called socialized in the United States, which I don't agree with, but it's, we don't pay in the same way that you do. I mean, you have insurance schemes and so on and so forth, but if you have a medical problem, you, you don't, cost is not going to be the, anything to deter you from getting treatment. Right. And it's so tricky too, because you have people in the disability rights movement who are very rightly concerned about a lot of this legislation and a lot of the framing um, that people just have it on an individual basis. I'm wondering if you can tell the story of Robert Latimer. This is just an excruciatingly tragic story. He had a a severely disabled daughter. And and I think this is an example of something that, you know, this, this girl would not have lived if it had been, if not for the technology that that kind of kept her alive, she had a severe uh, birth injury. Can can you tell us what happened here? Yes, this child was born. Um, this was uh, probably in the really early two thousands. The child was born. There was a mishap when she was born. Um, it was a cerebral palsy thing again, lack of oxygen, and she never ever grew beyond the ability or awareness of a three or four or five month old baby. So, and she was alive, she was kept alive and she had to go through more and more treatments. And the, the pain that she suffered was excruciating. In fact, one of the times uh, the mother, they had other children too. This is a farm family, Robert Latimer and his wife. And they were uh, in Alberta, I think it was. Can't remember exactly whether it was Alberta, but um, they, one time the mother came home with a little girl's name was Megan. And she said, they're now suggesting that they should do an operation to take out her thigh bone because she had such scoliosis because of, you know, just her pain was excruciating and it was getting worse and her body was not responding. And she was like a three or four month old child. And you're absolutely right. 
in the old days, that baby would not have left the hospital after the botched birth. I mean, she would not have been allowed to live. And uh, you could call that cruel, but I don't know what you have to decide what cruel is, right? And she would not uh, have been allowed to live or she would have died naturally. I mean, obviously, I can't speak to this particular story, but is it a, a case of like people are able to be kept alive or would they have, would a baby actually have been? Well, I can't say killed for by sure, a physician. But, oh, not yeah. killed. No, no, not killed. Um, but allowed not, to just die. not allowed. put on life support, allowed, allowed to die. Yeah. Yeah. Not put on life support, maybe not fed. Right. All those. Okay. Things. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, decisions are made with very premature babies now too. And it's, it's the younger the baby, I don't know, it's now like 21 weeks or something, you can try and keep a baby alive. So, okay, I mean, those are decisions, but are those the right decisions? That depends on all sorts of things. So this child was getting to be about the age of nine or 10 and not able to walk, not able to do anything really, and just in terrible pain. So one, the the wife made a, a kind of, she was so upset after being to the doctor and hearing this latest plan this latest surgery this latest whatever they were going to do to this poor child and she said maybe it's time for us to call dr kevorkian which was just an off-the-cuff remark dr kevorkian was dr death in the united states he never came to patients he had to go to him but he would help people die and the father then decided he had to do something the, the little girl was more and more excruciating procedures they weren't making her any better the pain was increasing and the wife came home from the hospital with yet another proposal for, you know, taking out her thigh bone or something crazy. And she made a crack and say, maybe it's time to call Dr. Kevorkian. And Dr. Kevorkian was, as you know, the uh, Dr. Death in the United States who was helping people die. But you had to go to him. Anyway, this caused the husband, Robert Latimer, to think about, about his child and what he was doing and what he wasn't doing and what was the best thing for the child. And so while his wife and the younger children were at church one day, he hooked up the exhaust to his truck and put the little girl in the front of the cab and, you know, turned on the exhaust and she died. And so he was put on trial. He was found guilty and he was sent to jail for 10 years or something. And it was, you know, it was a terrible situation, and uh, it's kind of a haunting thing. I mean, what should a father do for his child in that situation? That's the question, I think. And he did what he thought was right, and the uh, the law said otherwise, and he was sent to prison. Yeah. Ugh. So speaking of Dr. Kevorkian, he also did eight years in prison. I think he's a hero, personally. What do you think of Jack Kevorkian? Um, I don't disagree with you. I think he was also a bit of a showman and he had, uh, you know, he was all set to do all sorts of extraordinary things. So he's a mixed, he's a mixed bag, um, in that case, but he certainly helped a lot of people, including uh, a Canadian, if you don't mind me pushing the Canadian again, um, a man named Bastable who had progressive multiple sclerosis. This was before, this was after Sue Rodriguez, but before uh, the 2015 Carter decision in uh, the, by the Supreme Court. So somewhere in between those two events. And he was getting worse and worse and worse. And one day his wife came home and found he had 
he had managed to get together a bunch of drugs, probably saved some for days and days, and a bottle of wine. And he was all he was dying. He was just, you know, and she did what the Gawandis did. She called the doctors. So he woke up in hospital. And the first thing she said to him was, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So they eventually went to Austin, to, to uh, Dr. Kevorkian in the United States, where he had a peaceful death. But it was not the death that he wanted. Um, and his wife talked about that on a, on a Canadian a television program in Canada. He said he wanted his family around him. He we loved him. So this was not the death he wanted. So that was another, you know, there are all these stories that are out there. And uh, so they're very compelling. And it's including, and there are some things that are wrong. I mean, it is true that the Veterans Association uh, were interviewed, were talking to people and actually suggested they should ask for maid. Now, you're not allowed to do that if you're doing a job interview or a, or a healthcare interview with somebody. So they were, the, the Veterans Affairs people, and this was reported to, were removed from their jobs. Wait, 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 what do you mean? They were asking people... Like it, well, they were, was the there was there was a, one of the stories that I thought you were referring to is veterans who had been, you know, casualties in war in Afghanistan or wherever. Oh. And um, they were saying things like, I need this help. I need that help. And uh, apparently a staff person at Veterans Affairs had suggested they ask for maid. Right. So there were about four of them in the same with the same person, same, you know, staff person. And uh, that staff person was removed from his or her job, quite uh, rightly. And then there are cases of deaths that we would want to have, uh, potentially. There's the story of Margaret Lawrence, the Canadian author. Yes, she was a, she's a very famous Canadian author. One of her, uh, you know, she's just a foundational in the, in the burst of Canadian literature that happened uh, after in the 60s and so on. She was a very important writer. And, but when she was, she had grown up in Manitoba, and she probably had been exposed to asbestos when she was at the University of Manitoba. Um, so it, she was also a smoker, and you know she liked to drink or two. But so the thought was that she had lung cancer, but she actually didn't. It was asbestos poisoning, mesothelioma. Thank you for pronouncing that. I was trying to avoid that. I had a good friend who I had a friend who died of mesothelioma at age forty-nine. Not good. Not good. So um, Margaret Lawrence never wanted to be old and dependent on everybody else. And so when she thought she had uh, lung cancer and also she'd broken her leg and she very badly and she couldn't move around. So she wanted to end it. And so what she did was she persuaded a doctor to give her some pills and she ended her life and wrote a note. Now, and so for a long time, nobody knew that that's what happened. Um, there was a great outpouring of national grief and so on when she died. And I subsequently interviewed her daughter. And the daughter said, you know, we knew what she was doing. We knew she was going to do it. And so it was kind of okay with my brother and me. But And then there was actually a, a biographer. And they decided they were going to tell the biographer of her mother, uh, you know, why she, how she had died. And the biographer didn't put it in the book, strangely enough. So it was one of those stories that, could have been told and wasn't told. And that's the way it always is. We don't want to talk about it. I mean, I, I say in the book, and I believe it's true, that we tend to think of death the way the Victorians thought of sex. We know what happens, 
but we don't want to talk about it and yeah. certainly not in public. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, this has been fascinating. I'm going to keep you for some overtime, but, and I just, there's so much more to talk about here. And like I said, I feel, I, I'm not usually so overwhelmed with my, with my questioning, but I just feel like there's so many moving pieces here and I'm always trying to like kind of even figure out wh- where to start any given conversation. And I guess that's what I, I want to ask you. Like, how do you feel just as, as a person who's, who's looked into this, who's thought about this so much, like how, how can we sort of move society forward? I mean, yes, we should talk to our loved ones. Everybody should know what our own wishes are personally, but like, what's the best way to get lawmakers to take this on, to, to get, you know, everyone to kind of be a grown up and have frank conversations and, move toward a more humane, uh, reasonable approach to all of this? Well, you know, the people are always ahead of the politicians because this is such a fractious issue that politicians don't want to talk about it. And it, it, that's why people make these stands. That's one of the reasons Sue Rodriguez made the stand she did, went public, so that you can raise the issue and people start talking about it. And I think that's, and Brittany Maynard is another example who you wrote about, that she went public because the story, if you only hear a little bit of the story, that this young woman, you know, ended her own life at what, 27 or something, newly married. So I think we need to talk more. And one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that all of those stories that appeared in Canadian newspapers and on the internet and so on about how uh, people were needing social supports and instead they were told to have me. Most, no, I don't, don't recall any uh, CM, a Canadian Medical Association doctor taking that those stories on or any politician. It's only out there among the people that we talk about these things. So we've got to do it more. And public, there are, there are groups and there's some in the United States, Compassion and Choices is one, I'm Dying with Dignity here that holds regular sessions where you can talk about how do you do, how do you make your your um, your advance request? How do you do your withdrawal of uh, treatment request? Those are things we can do, but just bringing it out of the shadows. And I think, I do think there are going to be more made deaths because we're getting older. It's all, you know, the older you get, the more likely it is you got a bunch of things wrong with you. And and we want choice. We want choice and control. And that is whenever there's a, a, a survey done, it's usually that. Those are the reasons. It's the affluent people who are used to controlling lives. And baby boomers are the most demanding in that regard. I don't know if I'm asking, answering your question specifically. But- yeah, no, there's just so many. I mean, because I talked uh, with Amy Bloom on this podcast. She wrote a book, uh, a memoir about taking her husband to Dignitas, actually. And she lives in Connecticut here in in the US. And, you know, even in a state like that, where you do have um, right to die laws on the books, it's so difficult to thread the needle. Like you have to qualify, you know, in in this very particular way. And it it doesn't always work. I mean, I think that people and you say this in your book, too. I mean, I think people assume that they can stockpile some drugs or they can live in the right kind of state or province. 
and they'll be able to figure it out when the time comes. But it's just never that simple. Oh, and please don't, because so many people botch it and they end up in worse conditions. I listened to that podcast with Amy Bloom and I was, yeah, I was really, uh, really interested in it. And she didn't tell you exactly how much it costs to go to, to go to Switzerland, but it is really not for, no, it's not for me. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about Switzerland is what happens afterwards? What do you do with the body? Right. I'm assuming you have to fly it back, which is incredibly expensive. Exactly. Or you get, I don't know, whatever. Those are big, those yeah. are logistical questions that make going to Switzerland difficult. And and they don't want us to come. I mean, I, I talked with a guy from Dignitas and he said, why can't you do this at home? <laughs> You know, why do you have to come to anyway? So that's well, that's they know awesome. why. That's that's why they're they're yeah. there. And, right? and I, yeah. I and I think the other problem for Amy Bloom was her husband her had early onset Alzheimer's. So there was yeah his he wasn't going to die within six months. Uh, no, but he was going to get to the point where he couldn't control. But, but that he, was he a, that's able to the do law, it himself. right? You right. have to be right. within six yeah. months of dying, whatever yeah. that means. And so right, would, yeah, yeah. And do we know, not to get hung up on Dignitas, and we are going to wrap up, but do you know what, like, the policy is there with regard to um, mental illness? Because another story was the story of Nora Vincent, who's a journalist here from the States, who I know she had struggled with mental illness and depression for a really long time. And then in her obituary, speaking of obituaries that leave you wandering, uh, in the New York Times, it said that she had died uh, at Dignitas. And it did not give any cause of death, but we do know that she had struggled with depression. So I am assuming that she was able to end her life at Dignitas for that reason. Well, the rules in Switzerland are basically uh, that it's not, you're not dying for a selfish reason. You're not asking to die for a selfish reason. And so it's pretty loose. And um, I know people who've gone to other places in Switzerland and, uh, I don't think they would have qualified in Canada. There's so much here. Well, thank you. Like I said, I want to have more people on to talk about this subject. And um, you're you're a great person to start with. And there's so much ground to cover. But I appreciate your kind of coming with me as I (laughs) sort of stomp around and see what's... uh, See see what questions there are to ask, and it's well. Um, it is the big final question for all of us. Yeah, yes, indeed, L- literally and figuratively. Well, Sandra Martin, thank you so much for all the work you've done on this, and uh, thanks for having this conversation with me. It's my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. That was my interview with Sandra Martin. She is an award-winning long-form journalist, literary critic, and public policy specialist. She's a contributing writer for The Globe and Mail and the author of several books, including A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices. She is the winner of the BC National Nonfiction Award and a finalist for both the Defoe Prize and the Donner Prize in Public Policy. A Good Death was named one of the best books of 2016 by The Globe and Mail, the CBC, and several other outlets. Her resume is much longer than that. She's uh, She's been around. That's what happens. You got a really long resume. And if you want to hear her talk about what she's done all these years and how she feels about being the age that she is, subscribe to the Substack at megandome.substack.com. 
become a paying subscriber and you get this bonus content every week. It is completely worth it. What else? The Unspeakeasy Austin Retreat is going to feature Bridget Fetisi as our guest speaker. Could not be more excited about that. Go to theunspeakeasy.com, grab one of the few spots that are left. The Unspeakeasy online community continues to be fantastic. Please join if you qualify. (laughs) You know who I mean. And I'll see you in there. I'm in there all the time. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.